At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food, and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Jan Doner to talk about predators on your urban farm. Jan is a researcher and writer concerned with historic livestock breeds and husbandry, as well as issues surrounding predator control and the use of livestock guardians. She makes presentations on these topics at various conferences, including Mother Earth Fairs and the Common Fair in Maine. She has written several books and maintains a blog that you can find on her website. She also is a longtime member of the American Livestock Conservancy. She is the author of The Encyclopedia of Animal Predators, The Farm Dog, The Encyclopedia of Historic and Endangered Livestock and Poultry Breeds. Jan lives on her family farm in Michigan and has more than 35 years of hands-on experience with the use of livestock guard dogs for predator control. Welcome to the show today, Jan. Hi, Greg. Thanks for being here. This is actually a topic that is... uh, close to home given and I'll share with you in a little while but we we lost some some chickens recently to a bobcat here in the Phoenix area so um, <laughs> yeah we'll talk about that so I shared a bit about you can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now about 40 years ago my husband and I moved to our little farm here in Michigan uh-huh. 
and immediately went looking for some old historic breeds of poultry that we remembered from our childhoods Mm -hmm. and had difficulty finding them, which is why I got involved with the Livestock Conservancy. But once we brought them home and built this cute little barn and let them free range in our back property, (laughs) we started losing them. And we were Mm. losing them to raccoons and losing them to all sorts of things. And we came to the realization really quickly that we had a lot to learn about how to protect them. Right. Part of this is because things with predators have really changed in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. We both grew up in Indiana and no one ever saw a coyote or matter of fact, we very rarely saw a white tailed deer. I mean, wildlife was at its, you know, low point in the fifties and early sixties. And so we didn't have much to deal with. and, And this sort of resurgence of predators moving back into our backyards even is something that we're all continuing to have to sort of struggle with a little. Mm-hmm. Bit because things are changing. Yeah. And we had a great duck massacre one night. And mm, <laughs> we sorry. started learning more about things that, you know, we needed to do. And I went researching and looking for a livestock guardian dog because I had remembered pictures in my childhood of Great Pyrenees, those great big white fluffy dogs oh, and yeah. dog books. And, you know, they always talked about how they guarded the sheep in the mountains. And I thought, this is what I need. I need this dog, right? Right. <laughs> And so I went and bought a puppy and brought it home. Then began to realize I had a lot to learn about working with livestock guardian dogs, too, because they aren't just like a pet dog and stuff. So this has been a learning process over quite a while about how you construct good housing for your animals. Mm. Our farm grew to include sheep and goats and horses and turkeys and all kinds of things. And with each one of them comes new challenges. (laughs) And the dogs, we became more skilled at working with the dogs and we started to raise them and became involved with that as well. So it has been a big learning experience. It takes time to get some of these skills, which I think we've lost because a lot of us are sort of disconnected maybe from our grandparents' farm days. (laughs) So we're rediscovering all this too. Yeah, it is a learning process because I've kept chickens here at the Urban Farm since 1999. And until three years ago, I had a cover for them. They didn't even have an enclosed space to be in. And I've never had a problem here at the urban farm until last summer. And, you know, we woke up one morning to 10 dead hens and the kill pattern was closest to a bobcat. And, you know, since we found other people that have actually taken pictures of bobcats in the neighborhood, it's not been anything that we've had to deal with until now. Sure. And that pretty much mirrors our experience. My husband grew up on a farm in Indiana, mm-hmm. and they raised everything. And he doesn't even remember these problems. You know what I mean? The, the Maybe the only kind of problems they'd run into is a neighbor's dog right. or something. And so that 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 story isn't true anymore. And it's a good thing for our environment. Yes. But it's a set of new challenges for us. It certainly is. Yeah. Well, and, and you're talking rural, though, right? Yeah, suburban, rural, you Uh know, we're on 10 acre farm, but it's not far from Ann Arbor, big city, you know, (laughs) and we're seeing all kinds of predators. Yeah. So what the large predators are moving down from Northern Michigan as well. Mm. And that's true in many parts of the country. Mm -hmm. So we're talking urban, suburban Mm -hmm. and rural. And so this Mm -hmm. is a, this is a challenge that has changed really everywhere. Why do you think that is? There's several reasons. The large predators are coming back 
from a low point in the 60s when mm -hmm. we like enacted the Endangered Species Act and things to start to protect them. And their numbers are recovering. Raptors and other larger birds of prey, their numbers are recovering because we started eliminating DDT or things that were harming them. Right. The small predators have all moved in, had moved into the like open areas that the big predators had left when we first exterminated them from much of the country. Coyotes, for instance, were confined to the Great Plains when the settlers and people came to this country, you know. Um, nobody saw a coyote till Lewis and Clark went across the Mississippi. Wow. And that certainly changed because coyotes are everywhere now. Right. But they were they could spread because we eliminated their competitors, wolves and mountain lions. Mm -hmm. And they spread. We also deforested a lot of the land, which changed the habitat. Right. The small predators we have to deal with, like raccoons and possums and foxes and everything, lots of them were very, were confined to the southeastern wooded areas of the country. Raccoons were only down in the southeast. Really? Um, yes. And wow. so were some other, you know, some of these animals have been allowed to spread now because we changed the land use. There were, there were no large predators to bother them and they raccoons are everywhere now they were very much a southeastern woodland river mm -hmm. kind of animal originally red foxes were not everywhere and now they're everywhere too right <laughs> things are just really you know bobcats have expanded their population is still increasing mm -hmm. and skunks the same thing possums stuff like that but they've also all begun to habituate to living with us in suburban oh, yes. and even urban areas. Right. And that's another change. They're changing, too. Some wildlife biologists, you know, are saying they're evolving into something else now, too, because they've learned to live with us. Yeah. And use our food sources as their right. food sources and our shelter. You know, they're living in, you know, man-made shelter and culverts and, you know anything they can find, but they've learned to live with us too. So it is, it's a change from many things. Climate change is also a factor here. Many of these things are expanding northward because the climate's changing too. So we're going to see a lot of changes in the future. It's not over with probably we're going to, you know, things are going to be shifting and we're going to have to be a little more flexible. Right. Right. <laughs> so I actually called Arizona Game and Fish and had a conversation <laughs> with you know, with the person that's responsible for urban wildlife. And, you know, my first thought was, is you guys got to come in and get rid of these, either kill them or take them out. And he's told me some interesting stories about how when they do come in and, and eradicate them, they, the population of them actually fills the void where they've been eradicated from. That's absolutely true. It's the same thing with coyotes and foxes and things too. When you have established sort of pack or population of any predator, whether it's a bobcat or coyotes mm -hmm. or foxes in your neighborhood, you can sort of come to coexist with them. You know what I mean? Through the methods you use to discourage them and they get used to stop coming to your area <laughs> because it's not easy dinner and stuff. Right. But when you actually begin to shoot something or trap it or hunt it, you start removing the older animals out of the population. They're like the parent animals. Right. Then you're usually dealing with juveniles that are more desperate and they're less world worldly, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> they're going to make foolish mistakes and they're hungry. Coyote researchers have actually learned that when you start eliminating coyotes from a neighborhood, the remaining coyotes start having larger litters immediately you know they're ovulating more i mean it's just yeah. it's just like 
nature responding, you know. So you're better off to enact some, you know, sort of coexistence strategies and you and the predator learn to sort of live together without bothering each other too much. Wow. Well, so it's really interesting for me. This is this is like newsflash, Greg. It's really interesting for me that this is a problem everywhere. Not, I just figured it was our neighborhood. No, it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, coyotes are in Chicago, right? Really? <laughs> they're in. Yes, there's actually a large uh, department in their parks and recreation that's dealing with coyote sightings and telling people what to do about coyotes. Wow. And Yeah, and bobcats are, you know, not in all areas of the country, but they're very definitely increasing. So we're mm-hmm. probably going to see a lot more of them as well. But the large predators, too, are even in some people's backyards. If we were living in California, you know, they're having mountain lion incursions yeah. really down the foothills, right into, you know, areas where people's backyards are and neighborhoods where they walk their dogs or they have a few chickens. <laughs> right. Well, and basically, yeah. basically with our small dogs and our chickens, uh, we're offering them food, Right. So what what can we do here? I, you know, I'm like I said, I'm in Phoenix, the middle of Phoenix. There's 4.4 million people in the Phoenix metropolitan area. What can we do here? Well, the good news is there are proven things that work, mm-hmm. and the government, especially the National Agricultural Statistics you know, people have been researching for the last 20 or 30 years, like, you know, surveying people and saying, well, what are you implementing? Are you try this? Are your losses going down and stuff? So they kind of have a good handle on what works. Fencing is always going to be the number one thing Mm. because most people put up what we call drift fencing, which means it has big spaces and it looks decorative. Oh, right. Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And the animals can get through it. Right. And the animals can get through. So nothing can get out. And so people need to rethink what kind of fencing that they're putting around their yards because you can improve it. It can still look nice, Mm -hmm. but you can improve it. And mostly it's got to do with spacing. You know what I mean? Um, Spaces have to be much smaller than people think they need to be right and so fencing is going to be your big one another one is obviously secure housing you know everybody wants this idyllic image of their free-range chickens roaming around their yard but those are the most vulnerable birds day and night because they're out in the open like quail in a field right right and um there are things you can do if you're free-ranging birds to sort of surround them with some protection in terms of giving them shelters that they can run to if they're threatened by hawks or making sure you've trained them to come back into the coop at night night. and that Uh you're securely, you know, fastening them in the coop at night. And there's even now uh, automatic door closers for people. Oh, I've seen those. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a demand for those because you can easily train your chickens to go back to the coop at night. Mm -hmm. That's an old trick and you can train them. And then you though have to go out there and lock them in for the night. Right. Right. And so the automatic door opens business is a good one now. Um, So it's going to be secure housing. And then the secure housing also needs to be more secure than just, you know, chicken wire. I mean, chicken wire let through lots of things from weasels to, you know, raccoons reaching in and stuff. So you need to use hardware cloth Mm -hmm. and you need to cover all the top, the bottom, the floor, everything. Sometimes you need to put an apron of buried wire around the outside. Right. You have to use good predator proof latches. Our first battles with the raccoon 40 years ago were like a series of us trying to come up with better latches. (laughs) Why? Because they can open them? (laughs) 
because they can manipulate wow. a lot of latches. You really need to lock them with a clip or a padlock or something that they can yeah. open. It's kind of funny. We would come out in the morning and see these muddy footprints right up there by the latest jury rigged latch we had, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> you could see where he figured out how to open that one too, you know? Wow. So, are an important thing actually then you have to start thinking about what's around them like the attractants that you have in your yard yeah. and landscaping can be an attractant if there's places cover and places for for a predator to hide in your backyard that makes it more attractive to them mm -hmm. so you probably need to clear areas near where you're chickens are or your rabbits or something that you might have outside right you cannot plant plants that attract you know a, a deer and other animals to your yard because then that brings in the predators right people need to think about bird feeding because if you're feeding birds in your yard that's bringing in prey for oh, predators right people need to think about how they're feeding their own pets because spilled food or food left all out all night brings in both prey and predators mm -hmm. You have to think about how you're composting because you need to be either covering compost or using closed containers or something because that also attracts things in. You have to think about lighting. Sometimes motion detector lighting is helpful mm -hmm. around backyard coops and backyard areas and stuff. And it will sort of give you a sense of reassurance as well because if you step out there in the dark too, you want to see what you're right. stepping into too some fright techniques you know like either visual ones or sound ones and things do work i mean animals do get used to them if you use the same thing for more than two or three weeks because right. they habituate to them so if you change them up or you have things that respond you know to motion or something like that that helps too and move things around so some fright techniques the other thing is to be really aware of sort of what season of the year it is because there's times of the year that you're more likely to have this happen and springtime is one because animals like bobcats have young to feed oh, right yes. right so they're out hunting more they may be out more in the day and not just the evening or night when they would normally be out the same thing happens when you have you know you've had a long period of low food maybe you oh, know right. winter or arid conditions can also be a problem because mm -hmm. especially like where you're at because water even in your yard can be an attractant to wild animals who are looking for a drink and stuff so oh, yes. Another, another thing that's really important that people overlook is that you need to work with your neighbors. If you just do all this stuff in your yard and your neighbors also don't try to think about how we're like as a group, <laughs> you know, right. what can we do to sort of discourage the wild animals, you know, the predators from coming into our yard? And, and neighbors can work together, especially where coyotes are a problem. A lot of cities have like come up with really good little pamphlets and things that mm -hmm. neighborhoods people can get together and meet and figure out how we're going to sort of work together to re reduce the things that are attracting them in. And then when we see them, that we're going to alert each other and we're going to do some things to discourage them at that point yeah. too. Yeah. Wow. That is quite the list. It is. <laughs> that is quite the list. You've done this before. Yes. We've been doing this now for a while. Yeah. So I'm just going to review real quickly. Fencing. Make sure that you have the proper fencing. And the fencing is mostly for uh, canines because raccoons and bobcats can go over the fence, right? Uh, yeah, bobcats, for instance, can jump. And a lot of animals can jump more than five or six feet. Yeah. It's true. But 
if you use small enough holes, you're going to keep out things like weasels and mm -hmm. uh, uh -huh. which are also bad for poultry and possums and even foxes. The foxes can squeeze through a four by four hole. Oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so wow. it's things like that that don't even climb, you know, it will keep out. Yeah. You can also add to your fencing with, you know, sort of overhangs and things, oh, that, right. things that climb up and then try to get up, up and over. Now, if you're in the city, you may not be able to use electric wire, but electric is really really a good protection against a lot of this stuff. Oh, that's good to know. Cool. What we did here at the urban farm is we actually built what we call our super coop. And <laughs> it's about 800 square feet. It is quite the aviary. We put concrete down 16 inches all the way around it. Uh. And then hardware cloth on the sides and welded wire fencing on the top. Yep. And that's good because it will hold weight. Uh, some yes. people neglect to happen if you just use like, you know, bird netting or something and people think that's going to keep a hawk out maybe. Right. But like where you have a situation with a heavier animal jumping up on top, you do need something that will support it. Now that's you... true. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so you said small animals and you put a raccoon in a small animal category. Yes. I've never seen a raccoon. I'm a, oh, really? I'm a city boy, and I always just assumed that raccoons were, you know, 50, 60 pounds, but they're oh, not. No, oh, no. no. <laughs> they're much smaller. Yeah. Um, and they're about, you know, they could be a little bit larger than an opossum or something, but no, they're a small predator, and they're very opportunistic, so mm -hmm. they're going to mm -hmm. take advantage of a lot of things. They're a problem for a lot of gardeners as well. Right. Because they, re you know, they really damage a lot of your crops. Yeah. In a, in a backyard garden as well. Perfect. But they're very clever things. <laughs> that I've heard. All right, great. So step two was secure housing. Step three was attractants. And yeah. that, you know, I had never thought about compost. I mean, mm -hmm. we just compost here. And, you know, it had never occurred to me that, you know, compost might be an issue. It, a lot of times it's the prey that you're attracting into your yard that then the predator follows you know ah, so when yes. you start thinking about are there do i have a rodent problem in my backyard mm -hmm. what am i bringing in with the bird seed feeding and you know and all these other things right that's that brings in the next level of predator that's looking for that animal and then your animals are vulnerable too then yeah perfect so i want to touch on the encyclopedia of animal predators tell us about that please we very much had a mission for this book. It was very purposeful. We wanted to help people sort of humanely and effectively protect their livestock and their poultry and their rabbits and their pets and even themselves mm -hmm. because it talks about everything, even if you're just out you know, hiking or camping and stuff. Um, not because, because our interactions with them are increasing. Mm -hmm. We don't want people to be afraid. It's better to understand what to do, mm -hmm. understand where and when you're most likely to see this animal or, and then understand oh, what yes. you can do to discourage it and what you should do if you have a true like interaction with it. You know, these things get trapped in our backyards too, mm -hmm. and we have to deal with them. Sometimes because they're getting used to, you know, feeding from our sources, they can actually become quite habituated. Like we hear about with bears, for instance, mm -hmm. right? right. How they get habituated. Well, the same thing can happen with a smaller animal. If it gets used to finding something from you, right? And then it can get aggressive with you too. And it's this very same 
theory of habituation. And so we wanted to give people knowledge. And so we do spend, I mean, for every, we cover 50 species in the United States that people are likely to run into. Wow. And we talk about their natural history mm -hmm. and their preferred habitat because that sort of informs where you live and what's likely to be on the other side of your backyard fence, right? Right. We talk a lot about their traits and behavior. So you can take that and think, oh, what I'm doing is allowing them the cover they need, for instance, you know, this particular animal to, mm -hmm. you know, attack something of mine. And we talk about their movement patterns during the year, you know, what you might like see seasonally. And we even talked oh, about yeah. like future changes, how their ranges are expanding. We included range maps and tracks and what scat looks like. And wow. we have charts of damage ID. So like if you come out, like the situation you're talking about, you come out and you find, you found a bunch of your hens dead. Yep. We really came up with these really neat damage ID charts that you can go through and start looking for what you see. You know right. what I mean? This is the kind of wound I see, or this is the way the carcass looks, or this is the way just the scene out in my backyard looks, yeah. you know, or in chicken coop or something. Mm -hmm. So then you'll be able to diagnose what it was that really did, you know, bother you. And we've talked about the legal issues and we talk about real specific techniques for each species of how you can discourage them and what to do if you have to deal with them, you know, and the legal issues that surround it. Many of these right. animals are protected as they should be. Yep. <laughs> and many of them are governed by hunting seasons and other things too, depending where you live, state by state mm -hmm. and, and provinces and stuff. So we tried to make this a really comprehensive book, but also wow. one that was very colorful and user-friendly. Yeah. So there'd be a resource for people because a lot of us have struggled like compiling this knowledge, right? Exactly. Just over time, you know? Right. What you suggested, I mean, you said that you called your local wildlife people, and that is a really good place to start because right. they're keeping track of what they're seeing mm -hmm. in your area. And it starts out like that with you talking to them, talking to your neighbors. A lot of people keep sort of a journal or a log as the season goes by of what they're seeing, especially when they start looking for animal signs like tracks and scat and things like yeah. that. And and it's just like gardening where you keep a journal that helps inform, you know, you to make better decisions. You can do the same thing with watching predators in your neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And one of the things, obviously, one of the things we can do is add a dog. Yes. So you, you have the farm dog, Livestock Guardians. That's another book that you wrote. Yes. Uh, and that is that, that's also by Story Publishing, yes? Right. Yeah, Excellent. it is. So um, let's talk about dogs. Well, Livestock Guardians are a group of breeds that were developed by mostly shepherds in the old world mm -hmm. where they were taking sheep and goats up into the mountains, mostly in the summer to graze, right? And then right. they had wolf problems and bear problems and stuff. This is a very old type of dog. It's not the type of dog we used in this country because as we settled this country, the Europeans that came through, we eradicated all those large predators. And so our big sheep herds out west never had livestock guardian dogs guarding them or anything. But then as this situation changed in around the 70s and 80s, it began to become a problem. People began looking towards the old world solutions mm. for dealing with this. Mm -hmm. And the use of livestock guardian dogs in this country has just grown tremendously. We now have 20 breeds or more here and thousands of dogs. And we all sort of had to relearn this knowledge together. I tell right. people, you know, we all made mistakes in the beginning because we weren't, you know, 
we weren't uh, shepherds in the Pyrenees whose father and mother told us how to do things. <laughs> so we had to relearn this knowledge. And a lot of people have gone back to the old world to bring back breeds and to talk to shepherds and, mm-hmm. and learn how this is a partnership that you'd work with these dogs. Right. Some people are keeping these dogs in more suburban situations. They're not the most perfect fit because <laughs> they're a very large dog. Right. And they work by barking a lot at night <laughs> because they That's speak they canine do. language really well. Yeah. yeah. And they're telling coyotes and wolves and everything, no, this is my territory. You stay there. We have been using them for over 35 years now. And we have never had a loss since we've had the dogs. Oh, unless wow. it was our unless it was our fault. Yeah. I mean, totally our fault where you know you where we, you know, made a human error judgment like, well, we think those few sheep will be okay for the night right. there without a dog and no. Right. <laughs> that doesn't work. You have to keep up your preventative measures all yeah. the time. And so whenever we've lost something, it's been our fault. Yeah. And that's the way all of us have to sort of look at this when something happens. You know, I know when you come out in the morning and you find dead chickens or a dead lamb or anything, it's very emotional. Oh, it's, yes. It can be um, you're angry mm-hmm. and you immediately want to shoot something. <laughs> and you it can be a loss. It can be an economic loss. It can be a loss of important genetics if you're working with oh, a, a right. breed, of course. historic breed or anything. So the real answer, though, is doing the work ahead of time. Mm-hmm. It's not responding because it's too late afterwards. Yeah. And then you're rushing around trying to think of things to do instead of sort of taking proactive measures to start with. Yeah. One of the, so Heidi, my sweetheart, after, mm-hmm. you know, after we lost our hens, she went on a trek and researched what did this. So it was interesting for me to watch as she figured out, all right, mm-hmm. no, it wasn't raccoons. No, it wasn't coyotes. Oh, this is a bobcat kill pattern. Yeah. Well, they're all very specific like yeah. that. Some people, we, the first big loss of ducks that we ever had when we foolishly just kept them out in mm-hmm. a fenced in area with no top, right? Yep. <laughs> um, we came out to find, you know, six little bodies laying in a line piled up together with no heads. And that's a weasel <laughs> frequently, oh, too, right. you know? Yep. They've. They haven't eaten the bird. What they've done is is sucked at some of the blood and stuff. So, yeah, you have to learn these signs. And that's what informs you about what you need to be protecting against and where you messed up, you know. Yeah. And stay diligent. That's that's the other other thing that Heidi has gotten really, really good about. And, you know, so then I have, too, is we stay diligent. You know, the chickens, uh, we have a chicken yard in our backyard that's open and during the day. You know, there hasn't been any problems here. So during the day, the chickens get to go there. But if it's getting an hour before sunset, there, you know, we put them away. Yeah. Diligently. And you're kind of fortunate that you aren't dealing with hawks or eagles or something then, too, because that's the other threat that happens during the day. Oh, right. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. And. You know, it depends on your area, your mm-hmm. neighborhood. You did the right thing. You research and find out what it is that you need yeah. to be aware of, you know. Right. Well, and that's, I tell people that all the time. From a permaculture perspective, you need to go out and observe. See, yeah. what, see what there is for you to deal with before you put your garden in, before you get chickens, before you do any of right. that. Ask your neighbors. Pay attention to what's going on in your space and figure out what, you know, what pests you have to deal with. 
Absolutely. You do need to talk to people. I'll tell you something else that works good is to get a trail camera. And oh. people are putting them up by their back fences, yep. by their different areas. Then that gives you a tool for looking later at what was out and about at in the evening, right? Right. <laughs> and at night, and uh, they've really improved in which they store a lot of images. And um, boy, that's really informative and probably surprising to a lot of people. Oh. Yeah, that just planted a seed for me. It's like, we should do that here. Because we do. We have, you know, we have 19 hens in our backyard and two uh-huh. feral cats, yeah. you know, that help with the rat and rat population. And so I, I would guess that there's some of that going on in our backyard. And, you know, you were talking about dogs and we were talking about livestock guardian dogs, which are very important now mm-hmm. to ranchers and farmers with stock. But um, one of the reasons I wrote the Farm Dogs book last year was as we've kind of gotten away from understanding what breeds were the traditional partners of people mm-hmm. in, in farming, right? And livestock guardian dogs are, are one group of dogs. Uh, herding dogs were another. Obviously, that would come to mind. But terriers were often kept on a oh, farm. Yes. For the reason that we're talking about here, because of rats, because of little small predators that, you know, threaten things. Yeah. And there's even a big group of breeds that um, were just sort of traditional sort of multi-purpose farm dog breeds. That's where their backgrounds lie. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those dogs make really good companion dogs as well <laughs> to oh, your yes. family. Yep. But they also can be useful, you know, in fulfilling like that old farm dog watchdog role. Oh, yes. You know? in your backyard. And so a dog is a very useful thing. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. So so I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that fairy and what you might've learned from it. Now you already mentioned the duck situation, (laughs) which is one of them. Yeah. And the other one really is whenever we have lost sheep. It's been our fault, Mm. you know, and we have no one to blame but ourselves for that type of thing where we just thought, this one night it would be okay mm-hmm. for them probably to be out there. We haven't seen anything and losing them just reinforms, you know, reinforms us that yeah. the dogs are working hard. They're doing more work than you think. Yeah. Stay diligent. <laughs> that when they're there, they really are doing their job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And without them, we'd be in a lot of trouble. And so would a lot of other people now. So that, and just this idea of being prepared a, a ahead of time. Right. I mean, if you want to react to a predator attack, it's also really stressful to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you're better off to be thinking ahead and being proactive and being prepared and thinking out what you're going to do. I'll tell you one thing that surprises, I think, everybody, too, is the neighborhood dog sort of situation. Um, dogs are probably the primary killer of chickens or mm-hmm. sheep or something on small little farms. And, you know, it's somebody's neighbor dog that's normally, a, you know, a fine pet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody's heartbroken and nobody thinks their dog can do it. And stuff. But um, we get kind of complacent about that and don't prepare ahead of time and sort of thinking that we need to discourage neighbor dogs coming to our yard. Mm-hmm. You need to, I know it sounds like fun to have them come visit, but no, it's probably right. not. And yeah. you need to have good fencing to keep them out. And you also even need to think ahead of time. If I found a dog in my yard or attacking my sock, what am I going to do? You know, right. because um, you're going to be, um, I would tell you, a dog attack is worse than any wild predator attack. The damage they do to an animal is worse because they're not really hunting. They're playing. Right. And they cause 
more heartache to a shepherd or somebody than a wolf would because mm. they will, you know, hurt or damage or terrorize the entire flock of sheep. Right. And, um, or so chickens. thinking about dogs ahead of time is a really good thing to just think about, yeah. you know, how I'm going to react what can I do and yeah. what's legal, not legal, you know? <laughs> one of the things that Heidi did was she bought, you know, one of those air air guns that make a really loud noise. Mm-hmm. And she bought a bear spray. Oh, yeah. You know, and they're there. We've never had to use them, uh, but they're there. So that's, you know, that's some of that future planning stuff that you're talking about. Right. And bear spray is, if you live in bear country or any other large predator country, Mm -hmm. having bear spray available is really, really important. It's the Forest Service has really proven that to use bear spray is far more effective than trying to do anything else, like trying to shoot something with a gun, you know? Um, So, and there's actually dummy cans you can buy where you can practice. Oh. It has a non-toxic spray in it because (laughs) then you aren't, you know, you can actually practice how it comes out and how far it reaches and stuff. So that's another thing you can do ahead of time. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. Practice, practice, practice. Yes. (laughs) So what do you consider your biggest success? Probably working with the livestock guardian dogs. I I talk to people every day. I work on some online groups and try to help new people that are, you know, just buying a dog. And like I said, this isn't common knowledge in our background of how to work with these kind of dogs. Exactly. And so meeting the people that I've met around the country, even around the world that work with the livestock guard dogs and helping people is probably to me has been one of the most satisfying things because we are doing something that allows us to live with predators. And, uh, and it's also an old partnership. And I like the idea that people and dogs can work together, you know, so do I. I think it's something we crave because dogs mm-hmm. were our earliest partners, our earliest domesticated animals, yeah. and they were in our lives because they did things for us and they worked with us, whether it was hunting or shepherding or whatever. Yeah. And I think part of us still craves that because that's why we like to do things with our dogs. <laughs> yeah, of course. You know, course. I mean, this is a, a bond and that working relationship. And so it's very rewarding. Yeah. So what drives you? I guess I have a strong appreciation for domesticated animals mm. and for the historic breeds of domesticated animals. It was my first interest oh, yes. long ago when I, I actually wrote for Yale back in the 90s. I was writing the book and it was published in 2001. And I just feel like preserving our historic breeds and same thing with dogs that do mm-hmm. a, a traditional job this is kind of akin to the, you know, the, 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 the feeling we have now about heirloom tomatoes right. or heirloom apples yeah. or anything else. These are touches with our past that, and something that I really feel strongly should be preserved. Yeah. And when you're gardening, it's the same kind of thing. You have to learn skills and mm-hmm. how you propagate things and how you save seeds if you're going to be a seed saver and all kinds of things. And this this work with livestock and work with, with traditional breeds of dogs and stuff, to me, that's all part of one picture. Right. You know, it's all part of a puzzle here. And, nice. Um, I, I don't want to see these things go away. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there a book that is There been... is. Go. 
there is a writer, Stephen Budiansky, and he's written, he's a science writer, and he mm -hmm. was a scientist first, and he's a writer, and he wrote a book called Covenant of the Wild, How Animals Chose Domestication, came out in the early 90s, and it brought together a lot of research about how people are discovering that this, we did not impose domestication on animals. We sort of came to this jointly. They oh. saw benefits to themselves uh -huh. as well. Right. And dogs are obviously the clearest thing, but it's more than dogs. It's it's Laplanders with reindeer. It's all kinds of animals oh, yeah. who have been successful because they sort of threw their lot in with us. Right. Yes. And to me, that it's just it struck, it struck a chord. And the work that people were doing with identifying how far back in the past did these animals were domesticated and how uh, genetically you can say see changes in the DNA in the animals, too, because of their relationships with us. Mm. And it also engenders this feeling like we have a big responsibility to them. It's like, you know, they, they came into our farms, right? <laughs> and we gain a lot from them, but we owe them a lot too. Yeah. We, we, we owe them a humane life and um, we owe them protection and yeah. love and, yeah. and, and protection. And this is where this predator thing comes in, you know, where this is part of our responsibility to them yeah. and to taking care of them. And so all these things to me just sort of fit together. You know, they're together sort of very it. nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? I think that people need to be aware that the situation with predators, for instance, is going to keep changing. Mm. Everything that I've been reading about the increasing, you know, habituation of animals living in urban areas and suburban areas, the increasing ranges because of changes in climate, yep. you know, changes in land use. This this problem is going to have to be something that we stay aware of and that we learn to live with and we learn some tools to coexist with. And you have to stay flexible to changes mm -hmm. because new things are going to happen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Jan. It has been a treat learning all about this because this has actually been a topic that's been in my brain space the past few months. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I love talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Uh, I have a website, jandonor.com, and I have all my contact information on there. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, on Facebook. I'm, you know, t on Twitter and everything. And I do respond to emails because I'm trying to, I like to, I'm a retired educator and mm -hmm. it's all about trying to help people. Yeah. I work with some online Facebook groups and stuff as well, where people are Perfect. trying to um, recover some of these skills I'm working yeah. with livestock guard dogs or recovering with, you know, Re restoring sort of homesteading skills and stuff. Yeah. So I'm out there and available. Perfect. So that's Jan Donor. That's J-A-N-D-O-H-N-E-R.com. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash farm dogs. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic, whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, 
or if you think the only food that you have access to is what you buy in the grocery store. I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food and I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a black thumb. With this webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWantToGarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWantToGarden.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.